Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Good morning, everyone, and such a pleasure to be here and see everyone. I uh, <clears throat> trust you had a, a, a good week, and I know weeks can be up and down. Um, I had an especially busy week with this time of year. My work is quite busy, and um, I had the privilege of working with elementary students. And um, so... This past week, it was second and third graders, and part of what I do, this is a state testing, I I do some speaking with them, and to evaluate what their level of English language acquisition is. And so we chat a little, and there there was a little guy, second grader, and we chatted, and he still just wasn't really responsive, looked kind of sad, and I was like, oh, I'm not getting through to him. And you know, we finished, and we're walking back to his class, and it's like, oh, look, the sun's out. I thought maybe that, no, that didn't brighten him up. And I, was, and I said, hey, guess what? I have a sunshine song. I'm going to sing my sunshine song. And so I started singing, oh, let the sunshine in, and then he started smiling. So if you guys aren't responsive, you might end up listening to one of my very cringeworthy songs. And you can ask my daughters, I have a whole supply of them. <laughs> when they would, they needed to wake up in the morning, I had a whole, good morning, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so anyway, just a warning, just a warning. Um, so, um, before, uh, before I start, I would uh, like to just pray together. Um, I know Tyler prayed for us, but, um, but I would just like to pray, pray together briefly. Dear Lord, we, um, we're so thankful for this, this time to gather together to worship you. Um, just lift up um, your, your words to us and, and um, ask that I would uh, be able to to um, help uh, explain what uh, has been laid on my heart from you um, through the scripture. We're so thankful for um, you and your blessings and your son, Jesus. And and we just lift every person up here today and their individual needs and and, um, the precious gifts that they have and the precious people that they are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you've spent any time reading fairy tales or comics or even playing with kids' toys, you know that we as a culture, we're kind of obsessed with transfiguration. Or in, that's kind of a big word, and so in simple terms, changing from one form to another. So we like, you know, like the shapeshifters. I remember being little and my eyes were absolutely transfixed on the screen of my first major movie in theater. And probably my first movie ever because I'm old enough that we did not have DVD players or maybe if there was a movie on TV, but yeah, it was not a, it was a big thing. And that movie was Cinderella. I was completely mesmerized by the fairy godmother's ability to change a raggedy, unappreciated scullery maid into a flowing, glorious princess. As a five-year-old, 
And when I saw the pumpkin turn into a carriage, the mice turn into groomsmen, and Cinderella's raggedy, dirty clothes turn into a flowing blue dress, I really felt like anything was possible. Or as a child living in Kathmandu, Nepal, when I first read comic books because there was no radio or television available for me to watch or listen to, I was introduced to nerdy Clark Kent, who ditched his glasses and street clothes for amazing Superman gear and in order to become the all-powerful Superman sweeping down and making everything right in the world. Well, the Bible is full of transfiguration. We've got the burning bush in Exodus, Paul on the road to Damascus and Acts, and of course, many, many others. However, undoubtedly, the most significant transfiguration in the Bible is that of Jesus. This transfiguration is one of the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. But this miracle of Jesus has a unique distinction of being a miracle that happens to Jesus himself. The Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas considered that the transfiguration of Jesus was the greatest miracle because, one, it complemented baptism, and two, it showed the perfection of life in heaven. The transfiguration is one of five major milestones in the gospel narrative of the life of Jesus, the others being baptism, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So I want to talk today about Jesus' transfiguration, the transcendent power of God. I want to look at Mark 9, 2 through 9, and explore that passage together. So if you'd like to take your bulletins, um, that scripture is there, and, and we'll read that together right now. Mark 9, 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them high up into the mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So when I was thinking about this theme, it struck me as ironic that we, we easily accept transfiguration in secular culture. We love, we even become obsessed with princesses like Cinderella or superheroes like Superman. But we aren't always sure what to do with transfiguration in Christianity. I mean, Jesus was a humble guy, right? In Philippians 2.7, the Bible says that he, Christ, emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And now we've got this, like, shining brighter than any bleach could, the whitest of white, and suddenly he's this gleaming, very visible person, and yet earlier he's taking the form of a servant. Now, all of a sudden, we see him on a mountain in dazzling white, white clothes, his face shining like the sun, and we as Christians try to make sense of this. 
And the reality is we can't fully figure it out. As C.S. Lewis said in the collected letters of C.S. Lewis's uh, of C.S. Lewis volume three, remember he is the artist and we are the picture. You can't see it. But although I hardly, but although I hardly profess to have all the answers and understandings of Jesus' transfiguration, I would like to share some insights with you today. Today, I'd like to look at three points in the transfiguration of Jesus. One, the transfigured Jesus isn't supposed to be figured out entirely, but he is supposed to be appreciated. Two, the transfiguration offers us an opportunity to look at our own journeys of transfiguration. Three, the transfiguration of Jesus reminds us that his humanity doesn't take away from his majesty and divinity. In our scripture today, Peter's trying to figure things out. In Mark 8, 29, just a chapter before, Peter answers to Jesus that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. Peter's like, ah, oh, Jesus, you're the Messiah. This is a major epiphany for Peter, a culmination of his journey. Now he's honestly a little freaked out. And I mean... I have to be honest, I probably would be too. You head up with a group of people you're close to and all of a sudden you see before your eyes, I mean, it's one thing to see in a movie, but truly if somebody came in and had a wand and turned a pumpkin into a carriage, I'd, I'd be pretty freaked out. And he didn't know what to do or say. He was terrified. Think about it, he's there with Jesus, James and John, and suddenly, Jesus is transfigured before them. There's no telephone booth, no fairy godmother. Just instantaneously, his clothes become a dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So Peter, being the human that he is, tries to fig figure things out. Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus, and despite recently acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter reverts to lumping them in with other prophets. Peter suggests that three shelters be built, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. So some scholars suggest that Peter might be referencing the Feast of the Tabernacles where shelters were set up to commemorate the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He was trying to put the situation into a context that he understood. Whatever the reason, God immediately cleared things up and said, hey, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Peter was kind of thrown for a loop, and his gut reaction was to come up with a plan instead of just sitting back and looking on in awe. Earlier in Mark, Peter fully acknowledges that Jesus is Messiah. Yet soon after, we see him wanting to lump Jesus in with other prophets. Just as Jesus returns from the transfiguration, though, he comes upon a crowd surrounding the disciples. The disciples were trying to cast a demon out of a boy, and they were not succeeding. Jesus chastises the crowd for their unbelief, and the father of the boy says, I believe, help my disbelief. This is a reinforcement of what was happening to Peter and what happens to all of us as Christians. We believe, but we ask God to help us with our disbelief. I have to be honest, I, I get Peter. Ask my family or anyone who knows me well. I want to figure things out and have a solution. And like Peter, I can sometimes want to instinctive, instinctively act before I reflect. I want to have a grasp on situations and understand things, get things done. These last few years in particular have taught me that there is so much that I cannot figure out. But when I sit back in awe of Jesus and allow him to make plans, and as C.S. Lewis's illustration, be the artist. 
amazing things happen. These have, of course, been very difficult times for all of us, socially, emotionally, politically, during these past few years. I think that we all at varying times and to varying degrees have experienced frustration, fear, anger, disbelief, fractured relationships. I remember very distinctly driving toward Walmart around Christmas 2020 and seeing a truck that was jacked up high with a huge Confederate flag in the back window. I immediately started my angry inner dialogue about the horrors of racism and the people that must be in that car, in that truck. And it struck me like a thunderbolt that hate and anger were not going to change anything. And I immediately started praying for the individual in the truck. I consciously chose to hand that hate and anger over to God and lift up individuals that believe very differently than I to him. But the next step, the next step, which is even harder, is that I lifted myself and my own attitudes up to God. I realized with the greatest irony that I had become completely intolerant of intolerance. I'm not saying that intolerant, racist, sexist behavior is okay or to be affirmed or tolerated, but I was lumping and mentally discarding individuals due to their beliefs and behaviors. I wasn't simply disapproving of behaviors, but I was creating an us and them kind of inner dialogue. I don't have to love and affirm the behavior, but each and every one of us are children of God. I had to let Jesus be my guide and not try to figure things out myself, but bask in his glory and his presence. That doesn't mean I sit back and do nothing. Jesus clearly calls us to action, but I allow for Jesus' glory and greatness to saturate my being, my thoughts, actions, and daily activity. I follow God's command in Mark 9, 7. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The second thing that the transfiguration of Jesus offers us is an intimacy with God. It's an opportunity to search within us at our own personal journey of transfiguration. One of my favorite authors is a 20th century Southern author named Flannery O'Connor. Now, if you majored in English as I did or have taken college level literature courses, you'll understand that one of the things that is often discussed in literature are Christ figures in literature. So probably a, a, a lot of you are not that familiar with Flannery O'Connor. She's not as well known as, as some authors, but my guess would be many of you have heard of Les Miserables um, by Victor Hugo. And then later it became, of course, that very famous um, musical. Well, in that, that novel, that musical, Jean Valjean, who's the principal character, is a Christ figure, to kind of give you an idea of what that is. It's a character whose actions in life reflect those of Christ. So Flannery O'Connor has many stories and novels with very clear, significant Christ figures. Her faith, she, um, she expressed her faith often through her writings and self-reflections. And she at one point asked this question, have you ever looked inside yourself and seen what you are not? Yikes, that's hard. But isn't it what our Christian walk asks of us? Do we allow God to shine out of the darkness for us? Or do we instead 
try to cover up his bright direct light and follow instead an anemic beam of light with a dying battery life. I've heard people say, and honestly thought for myself sometimes, that if God presented himself to me like he does to people in the Bible, let's say through a burning bush, that would really help me know what I'm supposed to do. The reality is that he is presenting himself to us daily, sometimes in very obvious ways, but we're not always listening. So instead of working on the difficult task of personal transfiguration, we're busy following other lights and messages and end up in the end evaluating others' performances because it's a lot easier to point fingers at other people instead of looking inward to our own shortcomings. If we're so caught up trying to change and evaluate the behaviors of those around us, it leaves little time and energy for us to look deep inside and begin and continue with the hard work of personal and inner transfiguration. One of my favorite books, Candide, by French philosopher Voltaire, follows the unlikely journeys and experiences of a young man named Candide. He, his, he has countless experiences and situations that would be magnificent starting points for transfiguration in his life, but he remains throughout the entire novel fixed and stagnated on one single thing, attaining the love and commitment of a young, beautiful woman named Kunaganda. He has multiple situations that seem as if they would be life-changing and transforming, but he always comes back to Kunaganda. She does not reciprocate these feelings. Finally, in the end of the book, the very last page, he meets up with Kunaganda again, and she has become extremely ugly. She runs to him and tells him that she is all his. She'll marry him. And suddenly, Candide realizes that he has absolutely no desire to be with her. In fact, the line in the book, dans le fond de son cœur, in the depths of his heart, il n'avait aucune envie de se marier avec la Cunégonde. He had absolutely no desire to marry Cunégonde. We all have our candid moments. We don't acknowledge the opportunities and guidance that God has given us because we're too fixated on our own personal agenda. Then sometimes, when our own agenda comes to fruition, we realize we didn't really want that. We need to be mindful of our own journeys and personal transfigurations so that we're following God's plan for our lives and not just our own personal obsessions. Both prophets in today's scripture, Elijah and Moses, like Jesus, labored to help the people of God remain faithful as they were enticed by idolatrous ideas. They all worked to keep the people of God hopeful as they suffered. In other words, Moses and Elijah used their closeness with God and their own inner transfigurations to energize them into service for others. Finally, point three, the transfiguration of Jesus reminds us that the humanity of Jesus does not take away his majesty and divinity. In verse 7, when God admonishes Peter, this is my son, listen to him. In calling Jesus his son, God is establishing Christ's equality with himself. When God states his love for Jesus, he's stating his unity with his son Jesus. Although Peter knew and admitted in Mark 6 that Jesus was the Messiah, he backtracked a little in Mark 7. This becomes a very pivotal moment. The setting on the mountain is presented as the intersection where human nature meets God. It is the intersection of the temporal and the eternal with Jesus as the meeting point. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. In fact, for those of you 
um, who weren't here when this church began, it is that very intersection that brought about the name of our church, LifeBridge. God is affirming Peter, affirming to Peter the divinity of Jesus. Although Peter knew and admitted in Mark 6 that Jesus was a Messiah, he backtracked in Mark 7, and we sometimes do that. We can underestimate the glory and the divinity of God, uh, 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 the glory and divinity of Jesus. We need to take the time to put ourselves in situations where we are overwhelmed by the greatness of God. There are many ways we can immerse ourselves in God's glory. For some of us, music takes us there. George Friedrich Handel spent an estimated 24 days writing his magnificent oratorio, The Messiah, in 1741. He was absolutely overcome with God's greatness and presence, and the result of this intense interaction with God produced his work, The Messiah. The intense moving experience of listening to it, absorbing its essence, can bring to the surface of glory of God. Experiencing nature is another opportunity to experience the glory of God. If you've ever had the privilege of watching a monarch caterpillar transfigure into a butterfly, it is truly awe-inspiring. It is a transfiguration that is absolutely mesmerizing. When we are immersed in God's creation, we be begin to notice beauty, symmetry, and complexity. We find, th find things that make you feel overwhelmed and grateful on a regular basis. When I was growing up, my dad, who is a now-retired pediatrician, served at a hospital in Kathmandu, Nepal. So the initial adjustment for me and for my sisters was quite intense. Nepal still remains one of the poorest countries in the world. For those of you who have visited developing countries, you understand the absolute shock of streets full of cars, bikes, and random animals. Even in the capital city of Kathmandu, there were cows sometimes just sleeping on the sidewalks and countless random dogs that belonged to no one and looked to be replete with innumerable diseases, just randomly weaving through traffic and crowds and people. There was also a very common accepted practice of hacking up a loogie and letting it rest and fester on the sidewalk. My initial weeks there were spent looking on the ground. I wanted to avoid cows. I wanted to avoid infested dogs. I wanted to avoid loogies and excrement, both animal and human. There were no street signs, and the cacophony of the frenetic traffic was mind-boggling. Nothing in my new surrounding felt remotely normal. I wanted to go home. I did not feel grateful. After a few weeks, when the initial shock started wearing off, I specifically remember one day I started looking up and there was the absolutely breathtaking view of the Himalayan mountains completely surrounding me. We were living at that time in the Kathmandu Valley and the Kathmandu Valley is completely surrounded by the Himalayas, the most breathtaking mountains I have truly ever seen in my life. I felt the absolute awe of God's presence and I realized the mountains had been there all along. I, had, I, ju I just wasn't paying attention. I had been too busy looking at the ground. The awe and wonder of God is surrounding us everywhere. We just don't always take the time to let it inspire us.
We need to work at connecting with the awe of God through music, nature, journaling, or any other activity that speaks to us. So create time and space for Jesus' majesty and divinity. The transfiguration ultimately affirms life. It reinforces Jesus' teaching that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Although Moses and Elijah went to heaven centuries before, they now live in the presence of God. This same return to life applies to all who have faith and face death. It's the foreshadowing of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and ultimately the new life we have in him. This light helps to shine ahead through Lent with hope and confidence. God is here with us through Jesus. God is light. God is life. God is love. So I'd like uh, you to pray with me uh, now just um, uh, as the message is finished. Dear Lord, I, I just lift this up to you and um, ask that um, you bless the um, folks here at LifeBridges Week and just give them a sense of your direction and help us all to open our eyes and ears and minds to seeing you all around us in the many ways that you are every day. And Lord, we thank you for your gift of Jesus and the uh, transfiguration that he made for us and that he allows for us to make in our lives. Now, Lord, uh, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.